okay. Yeah. Although if you need to say something. Oh, Hare Krishna, everybody. Um, it's me. Just me again. Uh, I'm speaking with a, uh, a devotee, a very sincere devotee. Uh, and that devotee presented some questions. And uh, I think the questions are intelligent and of general interest because a lot of devotees have to deal with situations like that. So I thought that I would, you know, make a little, make a, make an extra buck here. You know, why not? I thought I would, <laughs> I would broadcast this so that other devotees could also hopefully maybe uh, get some benefit. So it's an honest way to make a living, right? So I'm going to get to the questions now. Uh, okay, here's one. In the Mahabharata, why was it wrong for Karna to be deceitful in trying to become a warrior if he was only following his nature? Later, Krishna says that one must follow their dharma. Can an act in service to following one's dharma be wrong? Very good. These are intelligent questions. Why were the Pandavas allowed to be deceitful when they were pretending to be mendicants and when they went incognito? And Karna is not. Okay. Well, everyone is entitled to a lawyer and Karna has his. So I'm not suggesting that <laughs> I'm not suggesting that being deceitful should be allowed. I'm just trying to understand the concept of Dharma more deeply rather than just following rules for their own sake. Okay. Um, first of all, uh, Karna It's true that Karna, you could say, was deceitful. He presented himself as a Brahmana to Parashuram, who would only teach a Brahman. And the Pandavas also, on various occasions, presented themselves with, in, 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 with false identities. But what is different here is the circumstances. The circumstances are entirely different. In the case of Karna, um, it's not clear that he could not have uh, served according to his nature, which of course, as you point out, he had a God-given right to do. He could have, as it turns out, he could have served according to his nature without cheating. Because when he showed up at the graduation ceremony of the uh, Kuru Military College, he, uh, when he, for no apparent reason, for no reason given in the Mahabharata, he seemed to just hate Arjuna and wanted to humiliate Arjuna. And considering that Arjuna had lost his father, and uh, it was just not a nice thing to do. So Karna is not just always the, uh, the victim here. The circumstance is that he lied when his life was not in danger. And... Um, when he did have other options, he lied to a guru. It's, it's like even nowadays in America or any other country, if you cheat, on, if you lie in your college application and the school finds out about it, then you, you don't get in. Now, if you look at the Pandavas, when the Pandavas were deceitful, it was usually to save their life. To save their life. If someone is trying to kill you and... and and not the government for good reason, 
But if someone is trying to murder you, criminally murder you, and you, you get away, I mean, every hero movie Hollywood ever made, the hero sometimes has to sneak away or lie or something. So lying to save your life from criminal murder is not exactly the same thing as lying just because you're ambitious and you want everyone to respect you or because you, you lust for power. So Karna, the circumstances were very different. And the reason I say he didn't have to lie is because Duryodhana made him a king and uh, made him a king and um, engaged him according to his nature. Because it turns out he was lying just out of personal ambition. The Pandavas were lying out of a justified right to save their lives when people were trying to criminally murder them. So you understand, I mean, there's, there's definitely a difference. Uh, as far as, uh, yeah, so that, that's the difference. So in performing household duties, what if one's spouse is not fully vegetarian? What if one has been with another person for many years and both husband and wife were raised as meat eaters, but uh, one of the people in the relationship, one of the one of the people, is that English? One of the people, one of, one of the persons in the. I guess English is the first thing to go. So one of the people, one one of the persons in the relation, or say, um, that both the persons, both both the both the the, the man and the woman were raised as carnivores. And the person's asking this question is being kind and uh, gracious, remembering how difficult it was for this person to change their old habits. Habits, So therefore, this person can relate to their spouse's a lack of awareness. However, sometimes when the spouse requests this person to cook meat or just buy it, it's a struggle. Causes me a lot of distress to even have to purchase meat. What speak of cooking it? Not being able to offer it and give in to this person. Uh, this person considers cooking to be an act of love, but it's definitely not that when meat is involved. And so this devotee doesn't want to be combative, just wants to stand my ground on this, but do it in a mature and reasonable way. So that's very nice. I really appreciate this attitude. I know I can't force this other person to make the change, and uh, this person is making so many changes, getting closer to Krishna, that may just be a matter of time. Am I acquiring negative karma even though my intention is to do my duty as a, as a spouse? Can it be proper duty when it harms us both? Once that an act is defined by its consequences, does this apply here? What are my thoughts? Uh, that's okay. Sanyasi specialize in marital advice. It's, um, you know, it's like wherever we can charge a fee, we're ready. We have advice for you. You know, paying customer doesn't matter the topic. So, so I'm trying to discern how to properly apply Krishna consciousness in an intelligent way without compromising our principles in the world. That's telling everyone very loudly that sense gratification brings happiness. Oh God, that is so dumb. And uh, and where I'm a minority. Okay, first of all, uh, and, and I don't at all mean this, uh, I don't mean to be unkind to your spouse, but 
I think, as they say, you know, this is not rocket science. I mean, if someone knows that to you, killing an animal is murder, I mean, what if by some bizarre karma you had married a cannibal? And, you know, and your cannibal spouse wanted you to go out and get some human meat. And so I, I think, honestly, I think on this one, I, I think that you have a right. You have absolutely every right to say that this particular activity to me is extremely uh, horrific. Because when I see meat, I see, I see the body of, of a murdered victim. And it's just, it's traumatic for me. So if someone loves their spouse and they know that a particular activity, you say, you know, I'm not to use the cliche, I'm not judging you. Actually, when you point your finger at someone, you have three fingers pointing at yourself. There's an easy way to get around that. You just point the other way. And that way you have three fingers pointing at the other person, only one at yourself. But that's some practical advice there. But I think in this case, considering, considering that, I mean, rightly and understandably, meat is, is it's actually traumatic for you. It's not just that we don't do things that way. It's actually you are seeing a murder victim. And it's, it's traumatic. And so I think on this one, the spouse has to understand what's at stake here emotionally and spiritually for you, and that you just can't participate in murder. You just can't, you just cannot participate in murder. And what if a spouse said, if you love me, you know, help, help me kill this person, and you can't do it. So, yeah, I, on this one, I don't want to be a family wrecker, although sannyasis do take a certain dark pleasure in that, but, um, so, yeah, on this one, I think asking you to participate in the murder of innocent creatures is over the line. And you could say, you know, on other things, we're really trying to help each other, but this, this is just too much. It's a moral issue. It's not even Krishna conscience, it's just the basic moral issue. So next, uh, it seems that a lot of confusion also comes from some misunderstanding about the duty of a woman in a household. Uh, there are so many views and opinions about what being a good wife means, and often I can't tell what is truly based on Shastra. There's also some confusion because some of the Sweeter Prabhupada's words regarding women get misunderstood. My understanding is that he was speaking about differences on the material platform, but this doesn't always help me knowing what is truly part of my sacred duty and what is being imposed by a traditional society and culture. How can I tell the difference? Good questions. Really good questions. First of all, um, we have to live in the society that we live in. That's one thing. And... Uh, the duty of a, a woman's duty is never to uh, tolerate abuse. That is never a woman's duty. And I'm not saying that anyone here is being abused. I'm just saying, though, that there are lines, there are boundaries. And but even the Shastra says one should stay with one's husband as long as he's not abusive. And one should not stay with an abusive, abuse of anyone. I mean, I mean we, just should, you know, we should not tolerate abuse from anyone. That's one point. Um, a duty of a woman, first of all, a woman's first duty and a man's first duty is to be Krishna conscious. 
Because if you're not Krishna conscious, everything else is not really worth that much according to the Bhagavatam. So our first duty is to be Krishna conscious. And we have the example in the Bhagavatam when the wives of the, of the ritualistic Brahmins uh, refused or, or forbid, forbade their wives to go to Krishna. And they just said like, uh, no, they just said no. And they went anyway. So it's not that these cultural things are absolute and take precedence over Krishna, over Krishna consciousness. Again, in a marriage, husband and wife, you know, they should both give and take, it has to be give and take. They have to try to work with each other. They have to be tolerant. I mean, my God, living with another human, that is so scary. So, and there's even husbands and wives who, I guess because of really bad karma in a past life, only have one sink in their bathroom. So, um, yeah, but as far as a woman, an another thing is that, uh, that men and women, like among women, they have different natures. It's not enough to say woman. Is a woman a Brahmana by nature? She a Kshatriya by nature, a Vaishya or a Shudra? And, and not only that, apart from her Varna, just what is her personal nature? For example, among Krishna's wives. Krishna's own wives, Rukmini, was deferential and a little shy, although she wasn't so shy when she wrote that, not wrote, but when she sent that famous message to Krishna, but but um, Satyabhama was the opposite. She was very outspoken and uh, sort of, you could say, you know, was really very fiery with Krishna. And he went and stole a Parijata tree from heaven for her, which just caused so much trouble for everyone because she said, I want that tree. So, so in fact, it's even said in the Bhagavatam that Krishna's wives thought that he was kind of a henpecked husband. They thought they really got him under control. And uh, although he was just playing, but... So we shouldn't have any stereotypes in our mind like the woman just kind of, you know, her main service is to suffer and just be submissive and basically not show any symptoms that she's an adult. Uh, you know, the, the, that's not what it is. The husband and wife are supposed to cooperate with each other. They're both adults. They both have their rights. They both need to have a life which works for them. And so marriage is just husband and wife negotiating and just finding a way that they can live happily together. There has to be mutual respect. Respect cannot go one way. That's not a relationship. That's abuse. Uh, respect has to go both ways. And uh, it's really just about both people being nice people and not being, well, there's words I can't use here in public, but... Um, you know, just not being a jerk, not being obnoxious and, and, and narcissistic or, or just wanting to control the other person too much. It's about two people that have to be mature, they have to be adults, there has to be goodwill. They both, obviously, there has to be give and take. If you, if you just want to do things your way, don't get married. Because marriage is a partnership and uh, there has to be give and take. You can't get married and have everything your way. That's cheating. You get married, it's teamwork, and you've got to compromise, both both parties. So I would say that um, obviously men are men and women are women. There are plenty of books like that. You know, men are from 
Mars and Women of Venus, all that stuff. I mean, there's a million books on that. There's a lot of social science, but ultimately, you just have to be real people and you have to respect each other and you have to, there has to be compromise and give and take. It's not that in marriage it's a man's world and it's not a woman's world, it's, it's, a, it's a partnership. So, let's see, uh, those are the questions. Let me see if anyone on Facebook has a question. I'm trying to look at the Facebook questions. Um, <laughs> one devotee wrote, thank you, Maharaj, you know more about marriage than two of my ex-husbands. <laughs> that is a real compliment. <laughs> anyway, thank you for that. Uh, I guess those, those are all the questions. So, uh, if there are no other, other questions, did you have any other questions? Do you want... Is it okay to ask you now? Yeah, sure, go ahead. So, um, also, there's some things I've heard about um, people having a personal relationship with Nishringa Dave and that there's um, a lot of fear that people uh, will impose on this personality of Krishna, um, such as, you know, that he'll basically ruin your life if you, if you pray. Oh, that, you, oh that's sweet. Um, okay, it's about worshiping Lord Narsingha Dave, Narahari, and having a relationship, and some devotees say, I wonder if there's anything at all that some devotees don't say. I mean, it's just, just when I think, I've heard it all. It turns out I haven't heard it all. So, you know, they're afraid of Lord Narasimha. Um, Prahlad wasn't afraid. Prahlad was just actually just very loving. And I mean, we, you know, like they say, if everything else fails, read the instructions. So if you read the Bhagavatam, Prahlad Maharaj wasn't afraid because he loved the Lord. And he was, he was actually very affectionate. To Lord Nasingh and Lord Nasingh was very affectionate to him. So if you're not a demon, then you probably have nothing to fear from Lord Nasingh. So it's a, it's a very uh, Catholic attitude, right? To be Catholic afraid. attitude. Yeah, I was um, nothing against Catholicism. I just have good fortune not to be born Catholic. Because, and I say that because I've heard so many horror stories from people that were born Catholic and. I'm sure there are many good people who are Catholics, and I'm sure there are some priests who are very good priests and all that. And uh, so, but I, I just heard so many stories of people who uh, had bad experiences. Yeah, we, um, we have to be Krishna conscious. We have to be Krishna conscious, and uh, fearing Krishna, we should only fear Krishna to the sense that we're to the extent that we're really doing bad things. And if we're not doing really bad things, then, I mean, Lord, Lord Narasimha is Krishna, same person. We are actually monotheists. And so Lord Narasimha is Krishna, they're the same person. And Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that, I, that you'll be happy and peaceful when you understand that I'm actually your loving friend. 
the Lord Nsinga is ultimately our loving friend. Okay. So I have one more. And are there some, obviously there's a practical um, aspect of, of initiation and, and a guru as a guide, as a real person to help you and clarify. But I'm wondering if there are also some, there's a metaphysical component to that. Sometimes you hear some extreme things like, you know, um, everything you do, your guru will take on your bad karma and they'll suffer greatly and, you know. It okay, okay, it yeah, I, I, wow. Yeah, let, <laughs> let, let, me sit, let me repeat that question for uh, people out there on Facebook land. Um, that this devotee understands that the, basically the relationship with the guru is spiritual. The guru is trying to help the disciple to advance in Krishna consciousness. That's basic job description. But then she's heard some metaphysical or mystical things about how the guru takes on the karma of the disciple and so on. And yikes. Okay, regarding that, um, first of all, we know that Prabhupada talked about the guru being affected by the karma disciple. Uh, I'm not aware of any Shastric reference to that. I, I am, I'm not aware, maybe there is, but I'm not aware of any Shastra that talks about a guru taking the sinful reaction to cycle. Also, I mean, personally, I don't really want anyone's karma. No, thank you. I think I'll pass on that one. They, you know, come around with little trays like with karma or d'oeuvres and not think I'll pass. And also, um, the Brahma Samhita clearly says, Karmani near the Hati Kintuja Bhakti Vajam. Just to end the Gopamata Vendra Mahosa Karma Bandhanu Rupa Fellow Hansanamatanoti that that the Lord extends to everyone, whether it is Indra Gopa, which is like this little creature, like an insect, whether it's Indra Gopa or mighty Indra, the ruler of heaven, and everyone in between. The Lord extends to everyone reactions to their karma. And they're bound by the reactions of karma. However, karmani, karmani is just the plural of the word karma, like these reactions. Karmani near dahati, kintu, chavakti vajam. But, kintu, but the Lord literally burns up near dahati, burns up all the karma of those who lovingly accept him. Karmani near the Hati Kintucha Bhakti Bhajam. Govindamadi Purushantamahambajami. So that's what we read in Shastra that Krishna burns up the karma of those who take shelter of him through a bona fide guru. And Shastra does not mention the guru accepting the karma of the disciple. So as we know, Prabhupada said that. I'm not rejecting what Prabhupada said, but Prabhupada did tell me in a letter when I was a Gihasta, actually. A temple president Gainesville many moons ago, and I guess many suns ago, and many Venuses ago. Anyway, so a long time ago, that was 1971. Wow, that was 47 and a half years ago. Wow. Anyway, Prabhupada said that we don't that we do not engage in mental speculation, so we don't doubt what Krishna says, but we do engage in what Prabhupada called philosophical speculation. Which means that uh, he said, probably gave the example, Krishna says, I'm the taste in water, so I accept what Krishna said, but what does it mean? 
Prabhupada said, that we can do. So by Prabhupada's instruction, I can engage in philosophical speculation about what Prabhupada means, because what he says is not directly in Shastra, and we get a very different picture from Shastra. And so accepting that there's some truth in what Prabhupada says, uh, so that's what I try to do. I don't reject what Prabhupada says, but I do try to understand it in terms of what Prabhupada calls our primary authority, Shastra. So what I come up with is that it's just like if you have children, you have a bad kid, it's a big headache. And so if a disciple is just uh, sort of a uh, perpetual or um, what's that word I'm thinking of? Um, like Dennis the Menace, you know, just uh, just continuously doing the wrong thing. It is a, it is a headache for the guru. It is so. So in that sense, any parent and Prabhupada, you know, I asked him one time, you know, can I see you as a spiritual father? And Prabhupada said yes. He said, Guru, spiritual father. And he said, the Gayatri, Gayatri is a spiritual mother, so the spiritual birth takes place. So, but for any parent, having a chronically misbehaved kid, it's a big headache. It's miserable. And so that's how I understand it. Not that there's literally a transfer of karma, so... If I initiate someone that was a thief, I have a thief's karma now. No, thank you. Well, they say that it makes the, the person sick, but that doesn't make sense because then no guru would be sick because everyone, every guru above them would take that, that on. That there's some physical illness. Oh, yeah, Prabhupada sometimes said, yeah, that's a very good point. That's very clever. That if it were true that the guru takes the karma, then whatever karma I take, my guru would take that. So that's a very good point. So that's how I understand it. Krishna, I mean, in the Brahma Sangita, which, which Lord Chaitanya personally endorsed, it said clearly that Krishna burns up the karma of those who surrender to him. If someone accepts a guru and then doesn't follow the principles, then of course there's new karma. And it's, uh, you know, it's not nice for any parent to get a phone call in the middle of the night, your kid's in jail. So, um, yeah, so I take it in that sense, just the general unhappiness caused by having a disciple that just doesn't do the right thing. So are there any effects when something that vow and then breaks it, the vow of like whatever you're, you're uh, vowing to do or not do? Well, if you, I mean, certain activities are against our vow. If like, if I vow that I'm not going to take drugs and then it's, if someone takes drug, they said they wouldn't do it, and they did do it. As far as relationship with the guru, I've never rejected a disciple. I've had some reject me because they joined the Gohimad or because whatever, I mean. But I just uh, probably didn't really reject anyone. And parents don't generally reject children. So if you, we can break our vow, but it doesn't necessarily break the relationship with the guru. I saw many times that if someone had fallen and then came back, Prabhupada would just immediately forgive them. They would just do the right thing. But there are karmic consequences to breaking that vow, those vows. Well, well the, the consequences don't just come from breaking the vow. They come from the activity themselves. 
the reason we vow not to do certain things is because those activities uh, bring on a reaction. So it's the activity itself. I mean, why would we forbid something which is benign? Well, what about in the positive? If you're vowing to chant 16 rounds and say oh, right, for some right. you can't, right. you're still breaking that vow. Um, True. Well, I guess it depends. If one breaks the vow just whimsically because they have, they have a sort of a... If someone breaks, the, say, the chanting vows, you point out a positive vow to chant. If someone breaks the vow just because they're arrogant and smug and just and the person doesn't think they have to keep their word to a guru, then yes, there's a reaction, but the reaction is more for the arrogance and the stupidity and just sort of the willful, um, yeah, the, the willful dishonesty. But if someone's trying their best, let's say someone's trying their best to chant, and as we know, a lot of devotees struggle with japa. I've never personally had that problem, but uh, so then if they're, if they're trying their best and Krishna understands, and of course there will be some effect of not trying your round, but Krishna understands. But So it depends on one's attitude, whether you're really trying your best to chant your round. Thank you. Um, okay, so I have one last one. This one's been... I've never gotten a satisfactory answer. So the other yeah. one, the other one was actually penultimate, which means second to last. Oh, right. <laughs> I did say that before. Um, in the Gita, I think twice Krishna says, he'll say, he'll make a statement and then he'll say, that is my opinion. And I'm wondering why God would oh. say that it's his opinion when he's God. Okay, Krishna, okay, a few times or several times the Gita Krishna says that is my opinion and so if he's God how's it just an opinion? First of all what you have to realize is that's a translation Krishna did not originally speak the Gita in English and usually the word, the Sanskrit word that Krishna is using is mati which is just a simple feminine Sanskrit noun formed in the usual way by um, adding the feminine ending t T-I, that's where you get words like Shruti or Smriti or Bhakti. Those are all, in, in Sanskrit, there are different ways that you can form nouns from verbal roots, and one of them is by adding a feminine ending, um, T-I. And interesting, I know this will fascinate everyone, that in verbs whose root has a, a, a vowel of A and it ends in N, then uh, the N tends to be dropped before adding the suffix. I know many of you have been losing sleep at night over this. So, for example, uh, mati, Krishna says mati or mama, that is my mati, which could also mean just mean my conclusion, my thought, my view of, you know, so it, 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 it's not literally an opinion. It's just what you think about something. And if you're God, then you, of course your thoughts are perfect. Like, for example, uh, so for man, which is where we get the word manas, the mind, it's, it's, that, it's that verbal root man, from which you get manas, the mind, or manasa, mental, and um, so then you add ti and drop the n, so man becomes mati. And so, um, just like, for example, 
uh, gum, which is the verb to go. It's not chewing gum, it's the verb gum. That's actually where we get the English word go. So if you, it can be a, an M. So if you drop the nasal M and just add T, you get gati, which means your destination that you're going to. So anyway, so mati, from the verb man, in fact, um, I guess, I guess why not? I mean, maybe see if I can do it very, very quickly. Just go right to the Sanskrit dictionary. Again, the word opinion is used. Christian says that is my opinion. But uh, let's see. I, for example, Krishna, Lord Chaitanya would say to people, they would say, you are God. He would say, Krishna Matirastu, let your mind be in Krishna. So he used the word mati just to mean the mind. So mati can mean devotion and prayer, worship of him. It can mean a thought, a design, an intention, a resolution, determination. So if you have a determination, this is what it means. That's also mati. Uh, yeah, it can mean one's resolve, one that what you've determined, what you've resolved upon. That's all mati. It can be opinion, notion, idea. Belief, conviction. Christian could say, that is my conviction. That is my view. It can also mean understanding. That is my understanding. Intelligence, sense, judgment. It can mean, that is my judgment. That's right. Okay. Yes, so again, it, it's good to remember sometimes that Christian didn't speak the Gita originally in English. So, and, that's why, and that's why Prabhupada did put it in Sanskrit so we could see what Krishna actually said. Let's see. Uh, okay, here's a question from Umayr. I hope I pronounced his name right. I'm sorry. Thank you. In what situation would it be beneficial to accept something, food, recreation, etc., in the mode of goodness, but not connected to Krishna? Is the mode of goodness to be cultivated separately from spiritual practices on the path of bhakti? No. Because... If something's in the mode of goodness, why not offer it to Krishna? Food is easy if you're in a situation where you can't just like bow down and ring a bell in front of like all these people because they'll think you're crazy. Then, um, then um, hit them over the head with a bell and then do it. Just kidding. That was a joke. Please don't hit people over the head with a bell. So, but in your mind, you can offer it. So, so there's never a reason not to offer a food and goodness. As far as recreation, thank God, Krishna mentions that in the Gita. And he says, Yukta we be moderate in our eating, like don't eat too much or too little. And Krishna also says, Biharasi, we be moderate in recreation. We need time to relax. Even in Mahabharata, when Krishna was in Dwarka, uh, they had a resort area. It's called Rivataka. Rivataka Mountain, where various pastimes were performed. It was on the mainland, so they would take boats from Dwarka to the mainland. And uh, it was a resort area. I mean, everywhere in the world, there are mountain resort areas. And Krishna went, with their, went there with Arjuna and the Yadus. And um, they had, for example, they had evening entertainment. There was a stage, and they had comedians, they had singers and dancers, and you know, and they, they had a whole, you know, it's like they had a whole show. They had a whole show in the evening. And there were there were places for bathing. 
there were, I mean, there was recreation. For one interesting thing is that when Krishna visited the Pandavas in Indraprastha, um, they had a resort area there too. I mean, having resort areas is a part of human life. So in, in uh, Hastinapur, not Hastinapur, I mean uh, Indraprastha, the resort area was on the Jamuna River. And so in the summer, when it got hot, they would just go down to the river and just, you know, and take vacation. And what's interesting is among the many things people were doing, it said the, the women, the women had a wrestling tournament. So if you think in Vedic culture, women are just kind of, you know, they never really become adults or they just do what they're told. The women, they had a wrestling tournament, the women. So that was very interesting. So, so we need recreation, just like Krishna created the world. So there are days and nights. Why? Because you need to rest. Your mind needs to rest. Your body needs to rest. And recreation is a way of resting the mind. And and, and again, it should be innocent. Uh, as far as the mode of goodness, no, the, the mode of goodness is the spiritual platform, but with impurity. Prabhupada used to say that when you it's like you go to the hospital with a disease, and you go in the hospital with two arms and two legs, and when you come out, you still have two arms and two legs, hopefully. And um, so uh, goodness is the soul's nature, pure goodness. Vishuddha sattva, shuddha sattva, vishuddha sattva. But in the material world, that so goodness is the spiritual platform. But when it becomes contaminated, it's called the mode of goodness. But it's the same thing, just pure or impure. Uh, okay, so I answered that question. Maybe I won a washing machine or something. Let's see. Huh. Oh, uh, my friend that said, uh, that funny thing before, take a break or you'll break down. Yes. I, I agree with that. So, thank you very much. Uh, oh, okay, here's one. Uh, another question. This is a bit different than what you've been ch chatting about. However, I've had the question for a while. You say quite often that materialism is circular reasoning. Can you elaborate on this? Why is the mind not their first principle or self-evident? That's interesting. Someone's actually paying attention to what I'm saying. So, um, when I say that materialism is, is um, circular reasoning, I'm referring to the philosophy, the explicit philosophy. By materialism, it doesn't mean someone who just runs around, you know, tries to get a lot of sense gratification. But here, materialism means a philosophy, a, a, a serious philosophy that nothing is real except matter. And um, as far as that being circular reasoning, uh, it is circular reasoning. What I've said is circular reasoning is if you don't provide a um, proper foundation for your knowledge. Now, in this case, I was not saying materialism is circular reasoning. Actually, I was saying that... Um, that assuming that there's a real world out there, assuming the reality of the material world 
is circular. Whereas if you say, I accept as a self-evident first principle of my knowledge system that there's a real world, and I'm accepting that, not empirically, in a sense. It's not that I'm doing a test on that. It's just that I experience the world, which you could say in a sense is an empirical experience, but, but I just experienced the world, and, and I experienced it as real, and the reality of the world presents itself to me in such a powerful way that I can't doubt it, and therefore it's properly basic as, as a first or foundational principle of my knowledge. So that what circular is, if you just, if you don't explain why you're accepting the world is real, and just assume it's real because, for example, there's a real building, there's a real car, there's a real person, a body, and therefore there's a real world. The circularity is saying the world is real because there are real things in the world. That's a circular argument. But if you say that the world in general is real because it presents itself to us in a way which is self-evident, and therefore, based on that experience of a self-evident real world, I accept it, then that's not circular. Little technical. Uh, if that's giving you a headache, just go have another cup of nectar, you know, and you'll forget all about it. So, um, okay, actually, I, I can tell everybody that's watching, I am, um, preparing a paper I'm going to give uh, Krishna Willing on January 19th in Gainesville, Florida in a very important um, conference on consciousness in science. It's sort of like science and religion. And it's being co-hosted by the University of Florida. I'm going to speak on, um, actually maybe I can read you what I'm going to speak on. I wrote a little abstract, it's posted now. Let's see if I can find it real quick here. Okay, here it is. Here's the abstract means it's like a little summary. This is what I'm going to speak on. and probably going to speak about 30, 35 minutes. Okay. If Aristotle, Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, if Aristotle, Newton, Jefferson, and countless other great thinkers were right, we all live in a bi-dimensional universe, physical and metaphysical. This view can also be demonstrated by basic epistemology. For two and a half thousand years of recorded Western history, physics and metaphysics have at times lived in peace, at times gone to war as allies, and at times gone to war against each other. This history clearly shows that human society has most prospered in times of peace and cooperation between those focused on both the physical and the metaphysical dimension of reality. Today, how would such cooperation impact the rational and scientific study of consciousness. Is there an epistemically justifiable way to integrate physical and metaphysical insights into the nature and potential of consciousness? What would that integral view of consciousness look like? So that, just in a few words, what I'm going to speak on Saturday at, uh, I forget, you can look at it online. Um, that conference. So I don't think there's any other questions from Facebook. Um, let's see. Um, I don't think so. Uh, oh, here's one. I've come across Srila, oh, some devotee who claims to be the one evoking love of God like 500 years ago. He has testimonies, crying and laughing. He also preaches Jesus stuff. 
he was expressing if you could have a debate with him and i really look up to you in krishna consciousness and would love to see if this is a real deal or not doesn't sound very real um I mean, if someone, I mean, if someone claims to be the one evoking love of God, just like Lord Chaitanya did, but we've hardly anyone's ever heard of the person, it's, um, it doesn't sound right. But as far as this person, so, uh, Bonnie Perry uh, sent this in. Maybe you could send me some, uh, information or make up this person, take a look. Sure, no problem asking. Uh, someone wish me Happy New Year. Happy New Year to everyone. Um, I think that's it. Uh, oh, here's something. So, uh, oh, Casey Martin, I just got a letter from him. In previous lectures, you have described the fact of our bi-dimensional reality, that is physical matter and metaphysical objects, such as equality existing simultaneously. How does one then take this logical argument to the next step that there is a metaphysical objective soul and then God, specifically Krishna, as described in the Vedic literature? Thank you. Um, the next step, I'm going to be speaking about that. The next step, basically, see, if you understand the world is bidimensional, then it doesn't prove that Krishna is God or, or but it, what it does prove is that we need a metaphysical sign, and we haven't got one. I mean, we do have one. People just don't know about it. It's Krishna consciousness. So, um, so my point is that uh, would be that if you understand you live in a bi-dimensional universe, you need to start paying a lot more attention, uh, attention to the metaphysical dimension of reality, and you need to start asking questions. What what would have to be the case for there to be a bi-dimensional universe? Just like scientist cosmogony is the branch of science that tries to understand where the universe came from, the origin of the universe. So if we show, and we can show very easily that we live in a bi-dimensional universe, then the natural question is, how the heck did that happen? It's like, what else must be true? What else is likely true? And if we live in a bi-dimensional universe, what opportunities does that reveal to us in terms of acquiring by the uh, uh, metaphysical knowledge? So it, it, if nothing else, it opens people to the need to seriously study, investigate, and try to understand uh, what the metaphysical dimension is. And that's the dimension that includes morality, it includes God, it includes the very idea of truth. Because you can say, for example, you can report about what your senses see, like I see a horse, I see my own face in the mirror, or I'm eating an apple, or this or that, or you know, or I just heard some music. So you can report your experiences. But to say that they're true is not empirical, that's actually philosophical and metaphysical. Because there's a correspondence issue. To what extent, for example, does the music you heard, to what extent does it correspond to an objective reality, an objective sound that is occurring outside of you? If you see something, if you see a forest, to what extent are your senses giving you 
a reliable picture of the forest. Now we can test that. For example, you see certain things and then people can go, but you see, even if they say to confirm it, like, okay, we're gonna measure all the trees in the forest and see if you're, but then again, that involves touching, it involves other seeing. So you're, you're kind of stuck inside the world of your senses. And if your senses are not reliable, but consistent, what if your senses are consistently unreliable? It's just like, what if someone is born in such a way that every time they see the color green, they see blue. So what if it actually is green? We can even show, uh, let's say physiologically or neurologically that, that somehow that person's nervous system is kind of bending or distorting the light rays that are coming in. But still, if the person consistently sees green as blue, then, uh, so what if there are certain built-in and entirely consistent illusions in the way we perceive the world? And then, of course, then you have to get into the point, what about phenomenology? What about the world as you experience it and the world as described math mathematically, let's say, by um, physicists or subatomic physicists? What about the Newtonian description of the world? What about the subatomic description of the world? It's also called quantum physics. What about the artistic description of the world? world? Which one is real? Are they all real? Is one more real than the other? So even when you start asking questions like what is real, you're in metaphysical territory. Because animals, it's not that, it, let's say an animal, you know, is chomping, just eating some, you know, a bush or something and says, what do I mean by bush? And am I the one eating? Or, you know, as far as we know, animals don't just go into uh, philosophical reveries like that. So as soon as you, because, because if you just take whatever you experience is true, you're kind of skipping a lot of problematic things, like to what extent do your senses give you perfectly reliable information about what's out there? And I'm going to be addressing all these topics in, in my talk, so stay tuned. Listen to my lecture. Uh, you know, empty out your bank account, send me all your money, never mind things like, you know, the well, your own welfare and that of your family and friends. I'm just kidding, that, that was a joke. Please believe me, that was a joke. So, um, anyway, stay tuned and try to watch that and we'll answer a lot of the questions. So right now, uh, it's that magic time and I've got to say goodbye. So thank you all very much for listening. Uh, I appreciate it and I hope to see you all or just see your names there again very soon. Hare Krishna.